0: Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as we worship and fellowship together. To find out more about Waterbrook, go to www.waterbrook.church. So that'll be in October that we'll show um, that movie. And um, just as an intro to that, a little more information. Some of you saw Kosti Hinn, who's Benny Hinn's nephew, uh, in that movie, he came out of the uh, of the Prosperity Gospel movement and, um, and is now pastoring actually in Phoenix. Uh, he's in a church down there. But since that movie has been released in the last couple of weeks, there's been a public dialogue on Twitter uh, going back and forth, but also publicly where Benny Hinn has repented of some of his Prosperity Gospel teaching as a result of this, which is an interesting... Dynamic now there's a, it's a long change to come back out of that prosperity gospel um, thinking but um, there's been an, it's just been interesting to watch Costi who is his nephew um, interact publicly and in praying for one another and trying to do it graciously and as we're trying to equip people to share their faith one of the things you have to work through is what the gospel is not because a lot of times when you're talking to people about Jesus. The challenge for us is to undo preconceived ideas about what God is like or what the gospel is like before you can actually get to the true gospel. So that's one of the reasons why we're introducing that. It's not to be controversial. It's not to be arrogant or self-righteous. In some ways, it's a good warning to us to be careful because this treasure of the gospel has to be handled carefully. And yet, on the same time, we keep coming back to scriptures that are designed to help people suffer, And that's the message that frequently doesn't get out. It's hard sometimes for us to comprehend that because if you listen to Jesus, what did Jesus say a disciple does? Right. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And we're not inclined towards that, right? None of us are inclined towards that, and that's why when we memorize revelation chapter 2 verse 10 for many of us it seems quite foreign to our experience that we are to realize that you know that we are going to suffer and that satan could actually take a group of christians and throw them into prison for 10 days or take a group of christians and have them executed by isis in the middle east and that be the reality and then what do you say to christians who do suffer and are in the midst of suffering, and you know, the re- the reason Hebrews that we're studying is written is Hebrews is written to encourage believers who are warned. They're weary. They want to pack it in. It's been a hard road, and as they're facing a hard road and some of them have gone to prison and some of them have lost their property and and have endured suffering to one another the writer to the Hebrews is writing at the time of Nero which is he cannot say to them that if you follow Jesus it'll get easier he has to say to them if you follow Jesus it could get harder. And we want a message that kind of allows us to cocoon ourselves, to pull ourselves away, to shield ourselves and pull back. And that's what we're inclined to do. I mean, you and I realize this personally, don't we? We realize that when someone wounds us, even, not like many of the Christians around the world, if we get our feelings hurt, we withdraw. Someone says the wrong thing, treats us the wrong way, what do we do? Well, I'm going to cut, cut them off. I'm going to cut them out. I'm going to withdraw. And then we come to the Bible... And that's what's happening in Hebrews. We're held up the the image of Jesus. And and as we're asking the question, what would you say to somebody who has already suffered for the gospel, if you were inspired by the Holy Spirit, as these writers were, what would you say to them when they suffered? And what the Bible says repeatedly is not retreat. It's to move ahead. It's not to run away, but run the race that's been set it actually repeatedly tells us do not fear men fear God that's what is being taught in this passage of scripture that we're making our way through and so I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 as an application of where the letter has been built to the end of chapter 12. Chapter 13 is the application of the exhortation of chapter 12 at the end. Listen to the end of chapter 12, verse 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is what? Consuming fire. And so there's this clear sense at the end of Hebrews chapter 12 as we have seen the glory of Jesus there's this clear sense that we as believers need to rejoice in and revere and tremble in one sense with awe and wonder at the hope of the gospel because what he just did at chapter 12 is he said let me show you the two options you have You can stand on your own feet at Mount Sinai in your own righteousness, or you can stand at Mount Zion in Jesus. And those are two radically different situations. If you are at Mount Sinai, what? Thunder, wrath, fear, two different mountains. If you stand at Mount Zion, festal robes, angels saints rejoicing and singing two different worlds celebrating that your sins are forgiven or fearing that you perish unless god intervenes you see those two different things and as we're making our way through this text of scripture he's coming and he's saying jesus is everything jesus is everything jesus is your savior he is your salvation look to jesus rejoice in jesus cling to jesus be glad you have jesus and out of that exhortation that we come in reverence and fear and feel the weight of it it is out of awe and reverence that we're able to follow courageously in the work of the kingdom if we trivialize the cross we will not triumph over our enemies if we, if we make little of the gospel of salvation, we certainly will not stand against the intimidations of, of our foes. It doesn't work in most of the world. That's why that movie has come out, because it's when you go into North Korea, when you go into Sudan, when you go into Iraq, when you go into some of these countries, the, the, the prosperity gospel doesn't make any sense. It's, in, it's an incipient gospel infection into the thinking of people to set them up for disappointment my dear friends the great hope of the gospel is that one day we'll sit before the throne with all the nations stand before the lamb and worship together without any all his well all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet and so that's why communion is important that's why we start chapter before i talk to you about hospitality loving strangers We have to get anchored in that chapter 12. How do I respond to this great awesome hope before a God who is a consuming fire? And the answer to that question is you don't retreat, you move forward. You move forward, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Don't go into that cutting off relationships with other Christians because of the struggle there. No, you press on because God has pressed on for you. And you don't turn away from strangers, you tune into strangers, and you reach out to people who are different than you in every kind of way. And why do you do that, showing hospitality? Because hasn't God done that for you, to invite them to your table? Why would you invite somebody who is an enemy, a stranger, to your table? Well, the answer to these people, remember, imagine what it's like. This is like some of the people in China right now. You've got to be careful who comes to your table. They could be a spy. They could be infiltrating. It could cost us. What would we do? We could shut it down. We could shelter ourselves out. But the Bible never tells them that. Do not fear men. Move forward. Run the race with perseverance, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, he's got it because he's got you. He's got it all. So calling them to press into places where their heart is reluctant to go. So even let me just pull back and give it Western, North American application. You know, there, there are a lot of us who are on lesser wounds have withdrawn for opening up our homes and our lives to other people. Right? Because of the wounds and the pains and the scars of broken relationships, we have withdrawn. We're afraid of being injured and we're not gonna have that happen. And we've shortened our Facebook friends list down to those who we feel safer. And you know what? If if that becomes our goal, which is to protect ourselves from pain, we can never fulfill the call of God in the gospel we're not able to do that and we can't emulate that and the only thing that will move you in into out when you have been wounded into the potential for more wounds the only thing that'll move you there when you're weary and when you're weary is worship just the marvelous thought of communion just the glorious reality that Christ has suffered and endured for you to secure you one of my favorite Hospitality stories in the Old Testament is when David finally gets his kingdom established, and in Second Samuel chapter nine, David has got his kingdom established, and he asks a question. He says to those that are around him, "Are there any of my brother Jonathan, who was Saul's sons, is any of his descendants left?" That I might, Because they were destroyed. Jonathan and his father were killed in battle. Jonathan was like his closest friend. Saul was his enemy. Now if you were any descendant of Saul, you would not want the king to say, is there any descendants around? Because in those days, when the king said, are there any descendants left, what did you expect? He wanted no claim or heir to the throne to threaten him. But that's not what David was doing. And they found out that David or Jonathan had a son by the name of Mephibosheth. I just think that one day if I have another dog, I'm going to call it Mephibosheth. Because <laughs> he actually says, when he gets invited to the table and he nervously comes, and David looks at Mephibosheth and says, from now on, you will sit at my table. And, of course, you can imagine for Mephibosheth, he he was dropped when they were fleeing. He was lame all his life. He has no value to David. He couldn't lead the country if he tried. And so here he is brought to David's table, and he says to David, What am I that you would be so kind or considerate of a dead dog like me? That is how I hear the gospel. That resonates with me. I come to Jesus at communion and I ask him the question, what am I, a dead dog? I have nothing to bring you. I have no use to you. I have no righteous claim. I am spiritually lame. Are you not spiritually lame? If you had to save yourself, how'd you feel today? Can you fix yourself? Can you heal yourself? Can you get over your struggles? All those inward battles? Can you deliver yourself? You know, you come to the Lord and say, you want me? And he invites us to sit at his table as a full participant. As if we are an equal brother, one of the family. Isn't that the glory of the gospel? And you see, it is anchored in that gracious gospel that we are to turn outward and look around us. It's that gospel that should fill me with awe and reverence. There's no God like this God. Every other God, you earn your way. Every other God, you you have to find your place. Every other God, you sustain yourself, but not our God. Our God, Isaiah 64 says, is like like no other God. He works on behalf of those who wait for Him. That's the gospel. So I want to talk to you here just about this verse, verse 2, and what it says about hospitality. But let me give you, let's just move here. I want to give you, there's the the verse, verse 2. Do not neglect to, to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. We'll go to the next slide here, Curtis, and I'll make this the enemy what the enemy wants to do this is what he's actually going to teach here if you think of that full verse don't forget to show hospitality to strangers for some of you have entertained angels there's a there's a combination statement there what he's teaching is that what the enemy wants to do is he wants to keep you from doing what Christ has done for you towards others so in part that you might not know the joy of God showing up in that if you are not engaged in reaching out to strangers and ministering to those who are outside of your circle and different than you, if you're not engaged in that, one, you're not fulfilling the call of the gospel, and secondly, you're going to mix out on the ministry that that gospel has for you. And so you want to stay depressed, just stay isolated. If you want to, if you want to, Stay feeling like the whole world is a miserable place, and everybody is, nobody loves me and everybody hates me, and I'm going to go to the garden and eat worms. You want to stay there, Don't do ministry. The, the thing we have to remind it is God calls us out of our comfort zone in order to comfort us. And so it's this great cycle. He comforts us so we can comfort those with the same comfort we ourselves have received. but He also takes us out of our comfort zone so that in that He might minister to us and through us so i put this the enemy intends to do double damage to keep you from sharing god's love beyond your current comfort zone so others can encounter christ and to keep you experience from experiencing the grace that god intends to give you when you follow him in obedient faith into relationships that he sovereignly brings your way that's a loaded statement but let me say this god is at work putting people before you Do you believe that? Your view of the sovereignty of God has to be clear that God is orchestrating life so that you have the opportunity to move into relationships not that you have chosen, but that He has chosen for you so that you might experience His grace in those relationships and His goodness. It is not just them who God puts in front of us, but it's those He puts in front of us who become an instrument of grace to us. Isn't it more blessed to give than to Received. So let's just ponder this text for a little bit. And I want to work through two things about hospitality. I'm going to call this the discipline of hospitality. Um, defying your fears and overcoming your wounds by faith. That's what this text is teaching, right? Because these people want to withdraw, and he's saying, don't withdraw, move forward. Don't run from the race, but run the race. That God has set before you and so here's a couple of things that we see when it says here um, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers the first thing I want you to see is hospitality requires intentionality and the reason why I say that is it says do not what neglect that word neglect means to um, have something fall out of mind to lose thought of. And so one of the things that can happen is when we're all about ourselves, we can forget about others. And you can have somebody right in front of you that you're capable of ministering to, but if all you can see is yourself in the mirror and your sorrows and your struggles, right, it is easy in life, in the busyness, to neglect, to have others who are in front of us, others who are different than us, others that God has placed us out of mind. And so, you know, um, we regularly, since we've been down in the Twin Cities areas, we regularly have guests come. We, we have guests coming tomorrow. We're the local hotel from anybody from Canada that goes through our travels. We got friends coming in tomorrow. That happens regularly for us. And so there are some levels of hospitality where we have people coming into our lives that we already know, that we love. We're glad they come. They regularly stay at our house and stay a day or two and come to the state fair and do all that kind of stuff as they're coming through. We like that. But this kind of hospitality is not talking about hospitality characterized by those we already know and who share everything in common with us this is an intentional looking for people who God has placed in front of us it is the overflow of his intent why do we love him we love him because he first loved us Psalm 40 says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock and made my feet secure. And so the testimony of the psalmist is that I was broken and I was in need and he heard my cry and he saw me. And in intentionality, he sent his son. So here's here's just one of the thoughts that I need to put before myself and you this morning is, that if I am in the situation of these believers, if I am a suffering uh, person and I get wrapped up in myself, it is very much possible that there is people that God is placing around me and putting before me that I am just overlooking. And I, this text tells you that that's a tendency for all of us, right? Don't we do that? Isn't that particularly true when we've been wounded? It takes a little while to re-engage. We don't feel safe. The only way you can possibly feel safe is in the gospel. That the gospel allows you to see others. I can't see anybody else but me until I see Jesus is for me and not against me. And I can't seek anybody until I know he has sought and found me first. But if he has, and I'm secure in him, and I rejoice in his seeking. Isn't that, have you not already rejoiced in worship this morning that God came for you? He sought you, and he bought you with his redeeming blood. Doesn't that echo in your heart where you start to look around and say, Oh, I wish so-and-so would know that Jesus I know. And one of the things just I want to reiterate for us as a church family is that sometimes we think those people are so far away when they're right in front of our noses. In our talking about one service, two service, One of the parts of our discussion about whether or not to stay with one service is that sometimes when we do two services, we're shifting teachers and we're moving around and we miss the very people who are sitting here at Waterbrook even though we're small. Right? Because we're so busy doing the schedule that we don't see the souls. You can do that in any group, right? Have you ever done that? Am I the only one guilty? Right, you you know what that's like, and so part of the simpli- simplification of our ministry is so that we might slow down and see each other, and stop and pray for each other, and linger and build connections that go. That's what we want Waterbrook to be like. We uh, it's not Waterbrook's not for everybody. If you come into Waterbrook, it's hard to hide. <laughs> right. Some of you are trying today. It's hard to do, especially if you're leading, right, Mike? It's hard to hide if you're up front. But here's the second thing. Hospitality assumes unfamiliarity. By very definition, this call not to neglect hospitality, the word means not the previous verse, Philadelphia, brotherly love, but philaxenos, which is Xenia, which is the love of the stranger. And it automatically assumes that there are people before us that we do not know. They're different than us. They are not by nature the people that we are inclined to move towards. Or at least there's enough difference between us and them that it's not a natural fleshly inclination. It has to be a Holy Spirit inclination for us to move beyond it. My daughter Kathy her birthday is October the 2nd, and she, her mentor, Mrs. T, we called her, was, had the same birthday. And we all loved Mrs. T because she loved doing evangelism, not just as a task, but she loved people, and she loved Jesus. And so if Mrs. T walked into this room and there was somebody she didn't know... And if she walked into this room and there was somebody different than everybody else, remember the story. And I just did her funeral, some of you know, just a year and a half ago. But I remember the story when her grandson um, got married, had a kind of destination wedding. I think it was Los Cabos, Mexico or something. So they all went down. I know I can picture Mrs. T. She's a fiery redhead, you know. She walks into the room and every day they'd get up and have breakfast at the resort together. She walks out and they're all Hispanic, largely people, other than the folks who have come in and are staying and moving. in, but largely. But there was one fellow, I'm not sure if he was Asian or what it is, but he was a Buddhist. Mrs. T I can just picture she walks in she looks down the line you know who she's going for she's going I got to know this guy and she walked down and she went down to the end and said so what do you believe <laughs> that's how she would start <laughs> she just had no you know she's walking what do you believe and she'd go oh that's really interesting this is what I believe and she would begin a conversation. And her family told me that by the end of the week, he was coming looking for her. She built that kind of relationship. And so when the gospel gets a hold of you, the picture, this is what happens in your heart. You don't go looking for people who are just like you. You have this expansive love of God where you know God loves to go in places you wouldn't go and to introduce you to delightful people you would never pursue. That's what the call is. The call is to see it and then to overcome the unfamiliarity and to rejoice in it. I'm going to get you, Curtis, just going to mess you up here a little bit. I'm going to get you to jump down a couple to the Rosaria Butterfield um, quote. Oh, maybe it's the next slide. Is it the next one? Then we can come back. Is that one more? There it is. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, the tit- that's the title of the book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. But Rosaria Butterfield, some of you know her story. She was a professor at Syracuse University. She was the head of the LGBTQ Department of studies, uh, studies there. She was a married lesbian Um, practicing lesbian who was head of the department there at Syracuse University in Gender Studies and I think it was in literature as well and uh, she talks, she tells in her story the, the, the secret thoughts of an unlikely convert, how much hospitality played a role in that. But one of the things she confronts for us is that so often we see diversity and because of the culture, this culture is so polarized This culture is so polarized that we have all these fears about not knowing what to say and what people might do and all that kind of stuff that we don't trust Jesus to be like Jesus through us. And so this is what she says. Christians are called to practice radically ordinary hospitality. Don't you like that line? Radically. And this doesn't mean that you have to be, you know, the chef. This doesn't mean that. it, It means you need to have relationships where you enter in and build friendships with people who are different than you and it says um, radically ordinary hospitality to renew their resolve in Christ that's an interesting line I want you to think about that line for a second who is hospitality helping in that line right there too many of us are sidelined by fears and I just want to reiterate this our culture you got to think about this our culture feeds on fear And the enemy in Hebrews chapter 2 enslaves people to fear. That's the enemy's strategy, not Jesus. We fear that people will hurt us. We fear that people will negatively influence our children. We fear that we do not even understand the language of this new world order, least of all its people. We long for days gone by. Our sentimentality makes us us stupid. That's a a kind of strong line, but I think it's true at times. We need to snap ourselves out of this self-pitying reverie. The best days are ahead. Jesus advances from the front lines. Isn't that a great line? Just think about that. Christ is not intimidated. He is not afraid. Christ moves from the front line. And this is what we've got to see. When we think about hospitality, we're keeping up with Jesus. We're not doing his work for him. We're following Jesus. Learning to build relationships. So, uh, Curtis, if you go back, I'll just make a couple of co- other comments on hospitality. Third one, hospitality pursues gospel unity and diversity. What we need to understand is the goal of the gospel is to see God's kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what's going to happen in heaven? In heaven, every tribe and tongue. Our goal is not to make people, Waterbrook can never be faithful to the gospel and stay the same. Not because we're into change for change's sake. If God brings one other person, we're changed. Right, God brings another person. If God brings answers our prayer and brings people who are different than us, God allows us to bring them in the side door of our homes and our conversations in the coffee shops. God begins to do that in our relationships. What we're aiming at is not making a bunch of Dibbly clones, God forbid, or Waterbrook kinds kind of people. What we're looking for is to discover the kind of people that God has purchased from before the foundation of the world and created in the image of His Son, who are very different than us. Praise God very different than us and so that's why for example um, in uh, missionary history I wrote down the story I won't do all of it but Hudson Taylor in September 1855 after he had served in China for 18 months made a decision and the decision anybody know the decision he made after 18 months he made the decision go ahead he Diane. He like exactly he decided it wasn't them who had to adapt to a cultural Christianity, it was he that adapted to their culture so that he might communicate the gospel. Didn't change the gospel, but he got his hair cut, he got that thing, changed his clothes, and he made it clear that God would save Chinese people and make them Chinese Christians, not Amer- or British Christians or American Christians. And that's the beauty of it. That's the, you know what? The thing you will love about heaven, you will weep I will weep, I don't know how long, a thousand years in heaven to hear every tribe and tongue and nation sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. You know, my joy, some of you know this, my joy is that none of my grandchildren look Canadian. That's not because Canadians are that, there's some good looking Canadians, you know. But it's, I have Korean and I have Honduran grandchildren. And To hear Ellie singing in Spanish, to watch the two girls run up the aisle last week in a Korean Christian wedding, Lily not doing what she's supposed to do and making a beeline like 90 miles an hour down that. it brings me joy not simply because they're my grandchildren but it's a picture of heaven. hospitality pursues gospel unity and diversity. I'm not looking for a bunch of clones. I'm just looking for a bunch of people who want to be like Christ. That helpful? Hospitality is not built on reciprocity. I thought I needed to add that in here because the motivation for hospitality is not that they would invite you back. The motivation for hospitality is that Jesus has brought you home. If nobody ever returns, if nobody ever picks up on it, if nobody answers, it's still worth doing because Jesus is worthy of every tribe and tongue and nation. Isn't that true? So that's what we've got to pray over our hearts because it's easy to neglect it. Now I'm going to introduce you to the conclusion. I'm just going to wrap it up here. So there's a whole other four points. So let's go to the next one. That's the discipline of hospitality. This is the discovery of hospitality, and that's what I emphasized earlier. William Lane makes the comment there that when, it sa- you know, when he says that some of you have ministered to angels unaware, this idea of hospitality, he says the word of hospitality connotes a delight in the guest-host relationship through which there can be a mutual exchange of unanticipated gifts that brings refreshment to one another. You got that memorized? That's the next one. What he's saying is, when you show hospitality in this way, both of you are blessed in ways you never knew before you went in. Unanticipated mutual benefit. That's what he's calling for and showing here. So let me just go to the next one, I'll just walk you through real quick. Hospitality advances missionary activity, right? You have had angels unaware at your table. What are the angels doing there? That echoes back to Genesis chapter 18 when Abraham, it's great, if you want to do something this afternoon, read Genesis 18. I love watching Abraham try to be hospitable in Genesis 18. He's running around like a mad fool, calling people, let's get this together because he's got visitors. Who are those visitors? There, yeah, it's the Lord coming to visit him. He's got three who show up, and he's slaughtering calf, and he's getting the bread, and he's trying to get food together for them. He's doing this whole thing. But two things are happening in Genesis 18. Number one, he's about to receive the promise of a descendant through Sarah. Salvation. And at the end of it, there's an announcement that God is a consuming fire. Sodom and Gomorrah, both in the same section. You see, that echoes back. That what's going on when we're being hospitable is not being impressive, forget that, forgive us for that. When we're being hospitable, we're seeking that the kingdom would be advanced, right? That God in that activity is already ahead of us. That's, what, that's the beauty of it. You discover that God had planned this before the foundation of the world. All the days of your life were written in his book before one of them had to come to pass. You are not doing things that God's reluctant to do. You're trying to keep up with him following in his footsteps. Number two, hospitality teaches divine sovereignty. That's it. The reason Christians are hospitable is because we have a hospitable God. The reasons we are hospitable is because our God is sending people our way. God sends angels to his... You think you're just having somebody over. Hebrews chapter one and Are they not describing angels, ministering spirits, sent to minister to serve those who are being saved? Who's being saved? These people he's writing to. He's just telling, do you not know that God sends angels to help Christians? And that's that, going back to Lane's thing, it's, I mean, one of the things this is, is that God is ahead of you to bless you, and you think you're sacrificing for him. Thirdly, hospitality increases gospel expectancy. If you believe... Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. One of the things that has to go through your head is you got to believe that God is in the ordinary affairs of men and women. Right? Just think about that for a moment. That normal, ordinary, simple conversations, situations, coffee at Starbucks, or uh, Ruby's, I guess I should say, here in Victoria. Uh, conversations on the bench outside or in the pew here, going back home, sitting by a fire. Those conversations are actual places where the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will show up. As you share your life, contact your neighbors, learn how to have relationships with other people, God will show up. It changes towards gospel expectancy because you don't ever have a normal conversation ever again if you believe this. Every conversation has the possibility of changing someone's eternity, right? Marvelous. And finally, hospitality overcomes spiritual lethargy. And all I mean by that is when he says that God is working in these situations, when we're tired and wounded and struggling and we turn inward and isolate ourselves and protect ourselves, you will continue to be tired and weary and broken and, and wounded and alone and further isolated. You will go down the, the cycle and the pit of despair. That's what will happen to you. But if you step out by faith and follow God into relationships that he calls you and God begins to meet you there, that thing that kept you from reaching out to people, you thought, what do people equal? People equal pain, right? Don't we believe that? People equal pain. But people and Jesus equal grace and promise and life. And that's the only way out. And so as you get a group of people who are saying, "I'm beaten up, I've been betrayed, people have badmouthed me, whatever's going on in Hebrews and all that pain, he says, "No, no, 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 no. We do not shrink back. We shift gears. We move into relationships because God will build His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it so do not fear what you're about to suffer behold the devil is going to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for ten days you will have tribulation but be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life right he is faithful we can be assured assured of that Let's pray together. So, Father, as we come to the end of corporate worship, we thank you for your word which never goes out in vain. And we open up our hearts, dear God, because hospitality never looks identical every time but it's pretty easy, dear God, for us if we don't fix our eyes on Jesus to spend our eyes completely fixed on ourselves. And the only way to overcome the palpable hostility between people in our culture is to follow Jesus instead of the culture. Father, forgive us when we've been looking at the culture and being more concerned about the economy than eternity when we've been more concerned Heavenly Father about politics and not realize that we ourselves are well we're refugees we're strangers and aliens like Abraham was offering hospitality on the way home Give us eyes to see. Give us hope in Christ. Give us the grace that comes by going and the grace that is given by sharing. Life together. Make us a diverse and wonderful people for the praise of Jesus' name. And the only one who gets the glory is you. So thank you, dear God, for this great assurance the gospel gives us that enables us to do that. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. There is, uh, we had a lot of food from last week when we had Teen Challenge, so there's a whole other meal downstairs for anybody who wants to stick around and eat today. You're welcome to do that. There's lots of food there. I do want to pray over Karen Smith. She is about to have heart surgery this week and uh, will be in the hospital for a few days, so Sister will be praying with you and for you, but let's. Let's go out together praying a blessing on her as we head out today. So, Father, we thank you for Jesus above all. Thank you, dear God, for his unfailing love, his extending grace, his unconditional faithful commitment to us that we have just celebrated today. And we pray over Karen now, especially as a body. As she goes to have uh, heart surgery this week, we just pray, dear God, that you would give her peace, that you would... um, provide her recovery and strength, give the doctors and nurses and everybody that's involved the utmost skill. We just pray, dear God, that we might be able to rejoice and worship together again soon with her, but keep her in your care. And now I commit everyone into your care, dear God, and to your grace and your mercy. Send us out, dear God, that we might take grace and mercy with us in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Have a great day today in the Lord. Thank you for listening today. To find out more about our church, go to www.wbfellowship.org. If you have a prayer request today, we'd love to hear from you. Go to our website and click Prayer Ministries. Have a blessed day.